Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, well, this time I got busy fellowshipping and forgot what time it was. I kept waiting for somebody to get here, and I guess it's just us. We're, we're the brave few who decided to uh, get out in the cold, rainy weather. People who don't live in Houston don't realize it's scary to drive down here because not only do people not know how to drive on the ice, they don't know how to drive on water. Uh, yeah, well, they don't know how to how to drive on the water because it just it gets slick, you know. It doesn't rain that much, and then all that oil goes to the top and gets slick. So, okay. How um, shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and uh, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful that we can come to you this evening in prayer that as we begin our Bible study, remembering all of the many requests that we were prayed for uh, during our previous prayer meeting, especially for those that um, are being challenged in terms of their employment. We just continue to pray for their strength from your word and that you would provide uh, employment for them. Father, we also pray for others who are struggling with various uh, health challenges, whether they're of a long-term nature or whether they happen to be something new or something uh, serious, we pray that you would uh, strengthen them as well. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, we might, might be reminded that history is under your control, whether it is the mega history of the, of the world from creation to the new heavens and new earth, or whether it is the history that involves our own lives, and that as such we can always come to you knowing that no matter how catastrophic or chaotic things might seem, you are still in control and that we can still claim promises and trust in you, and you will always take care of us. So, Father, we pray that you would help us as we study this evening to focus and concentrate, think about your, who you are, your word, your will, and how this applies to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think the heater is on, and it is blowing on me. I don't know about you all, but it is at least 90 degrees in the pulpit. I am, yeah. But according to the thermostat over there, it's like only 69, so I turned it down once, but it just it's blowing that hot air, so it's just uh, continuing to, to blow, and I'm helping. Okay, open your Bibles to Revelation 18. Revelation 18, and we come to the second of these two chapters that deal with the, uh, dis- the future judgment of Babylon the future judgment of Babylon. And in chapter 17, we saw the woman riding the beast, and there we saw that the 
uh, woman riding the beast is a picture of the uh, control, the influence of Babylon the Great, called the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17.5 gives that title, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. That word abominations is important. This is a word that is always associated with idolatry. So that makes us realize that the focus in chapter 17 is in the area of religious belief, or we might say just belief. Any worldview, any philosophical system that ultimately answers questions related to ultimate reality, uh, answers questions on the nature of knowledge, answers questions on what is right, what is wrong, any kind of ethical system, is indeed a religious system, whether it, uh, it, it sees itself as such or not. There are many philosophical systems that don't involve going to church or going to a place of worship, but the place of worship is inside uh, the head of the individual because they are indeed worshiping their own intellect, worshiping their own ideas, their own understanding, their own value system, and they have enthroned themselves upon the uh, throne of God, and they are essentially worshiping themselves. So chapter 17 focused on the judgment of the woman uh, in relation to the philosophical religious system that dominates uh, the kingdom of man. And then chapter 18 is going to shift into another direction. We see in, in verse, um, in this chapter as we approach Revelation 18, that there's basically three divisions to the chapter. The first three, uh, show uh, God sending another strong angel announcing the final doom of Babylon. This is covered in 18, 1 through 3. The second division seems to be God the Father or perhaps an angel, but I think when we have this unidentified voice that comes from heaven, as we've had in the past, it's the voice of God coming from the temple. This is God the Father announcing the final judgment on Babylon in 18, 4 through 20. And then the third section, God sends a second angel to pronounce this final judgment on Babylon. So there's three uh, statements related to the judgment on Babylon and why it is being, uh, why it is being judged. So we'll begin by looking at the first section. God sends another strong angel or mighty angel, uh, to announce the final doom, the final judgment on Babylon. In 18.1 we read, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Now, if you look back to verse 1 of chapter 17, is there a problem? Just trying to get the heater... Here I wore a sweater tonight thinking it'd be cold, and it's burning up in here. Okay. Then in verse 17.1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. So this is the one of the seven angels who poured out the bowl judgments. We're not told which one, so it's an unidentified angel. That's the last time we have an angel 
mentioned, this, who serves as an interpreting angel through chapter 17. He's again mentioned in verse 7, but the angel said to me, and now in verse 1 of chapter 18, we have another angel. This is an alas angelos. Uh, alas is the Greek word for another of the same kind usually. So it is another uh, angel. This is not an angel. Uh, this is not the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an angel. Some people uh, want to identify this as the Lord Jesus Christ for various reasons. We'll get into it in a minute. But this is another angel of the same kind. So it is a uh, one of the angels God uses. But he's, the way he's described here as having great authority and then speaking mightily with a loud voice in verse uh, 2 indicates that he's very similar to the angels, the, the angels in 5-2 and 10-1 called mighty or strong angels. This seems to be a particular class of angels. Now, as we get into this, we see the verse state, another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth is illuminated with his glory. And in verse 2, he's going to cry out with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen. Now, the Babylon that we see here is the same city that we see in chapter 17. In both of these chapters, Babylon is described as Babylon the Great, identified as such in 17.5 as well as 18.2. Other descriptions are identical. Both are guilty of infidelity. This is the really the main idea in the word that is used uh Again and again, either fornication or immorality from the Greek word. Uh, the verb is porneo, from which we get our word pornography. But at its core meaning, it has the idea of being unfaithful to a contract. That's how the word is often used spiritually related to man's sinfulness, that man is unfaithful in his in the covenant with God, the crea- original creation covenant, man created to be obedient to God and to serve over all of creation. So the city is guilty of espousing a a worldview that seeks self-justification, uh, living in complete independence from God and breaking that uh, creation covenant. Uh, both the Babylon of 17 and the Babylon of 18 caused the kings of the earth and the earth dwellers to imbibe the wine of the city's infidelity mentioned in both 17.2 and 18.3. When we get to 18.3, we'll see that a, another element is added to the phrase there that's not in the phrase in 17.2. Fourth, the destiny of both is that they are to be destroyed by fire. 17.16 along with 18.8, and 18. The city is going to be incinerated in, the text says, in an hour, uh, which isn't a precise time um, indicator. It's not like you're going to sit there and time it to 60 minutes, but it is going. it indicates in a very short time, within an hour, the whole city will just be incinerated. It may be the result of some sort of atomic uh, explosion that will completely destroy and incinerate the city, which would also uh, seem to 
uh, support the, the, uh, or, or play into the prophecy from the Old Testament that the city is never going to be uh, inhabited again. It may just become a radioactive wasteland. Uh, next, both are destined for utter desolation, 1716, as well as 1817 and 19. Babylon will be never be inhabited again. What we'll see as we go through these passages is that they are simply reiterating the prophecies that are given in those chapters we studied uh, several weeks ago in Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, as well as numerous other uh, passages in the Old Testament that indicate that that Babylon would be completely destroyed, never to be inhabited again, and would not survive. And it's only in the future that this is going to take place because that has never, ever happened uh, historically. Both chapters refer to Babylon as the great city, 1718, 1810, 1816, and indicates that this city becomes the source of all economic activity in the kingdom of the Antichrist. It is not, um, it is part of the revived Roman Empire. It's part of the Antichrist kingdom that, uh, and it's resurrected either before the tribulation period or it's in the early years. I think it, if it's not, uh, rebuilt at the end of the church age before the rapture, then it will certainly be rebuilt in that transition time between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. In both Babylon's, uh, in both chapters, Babylon has the trappings of a harlot, indicating that aspect of in spiritual infidelity in 17.4 and 18.16, and in both, believers are martyred. So these two chapters are talking about the same event, I believe, but looking at it from two different vantage points. And the first is that the chapter 17 is focusing on the destruction of the religious philosophical framework, the world system, the worldview system that dominates the world during the uh, tribulation period. Uh, chapter 18 focuses on something that is closely connected with it, the economics that take place during that, that empire. And so we see from this an important principle, and that is that Scripture does not isolate spirituality from economic theory. These are connected. Uh, this is one reason why again and again in the prophets, the individuals, the Jews, are going to be condemned by the prophets because they're violating the Mosaic law in terms of their personal economics. I'm emphasizing that because this is not necessarily an address to the government. It's never viewed as the government's responsibility to show compassion on those who are poor, those who are deprived, those who are unemployed, those the widows and the orphans. This was to come out of the uh, the end of each individual, and because the individuals are not practicing that, they are under condemnation. Nowhere in the scripture is the government being condemned because the government is not taking care of people. This is just a, the, that only got read into the interpretation when you saw the rise of modern 
uh, liberalism, both theological and political, in the 19th century and the rise of socialism and Marxism. Marxism is completely foreign to anything in the Scripture because both Marxism and socialism emphasize uh, do not emphasize personal responsibility and personal ownership of property and the right to benefit from the uh, production of what one owns. And so we have to be careful in this day and age as we see our uh, culture, Western civilization in Europe and now in the United States, moving more and more towards socialism, which violates the first divine institution, the second divine institution, third divine institution, as well as the fourth divine institution. So it is just uh, completely violates, and it puts Christians in positions that where they are uh, going to be asked more and more to violate their own conscience in terms of how how their money is then taken and used by 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 the government or how they are told or forced to utilize their own uh, their own resources, and this is going to bring a tremendous amount of ethical challenges, I think, in the in the coming years. And we're already seeing people begin to uh, talk about some of these things. Ron Merriman's written a, a good booklet recently that deals with this whole issue of conscience when a believer has a right to disobey the government because it violates his conscience and how this has always been part of understanding of English common law going back for uh, many centuries. As we look at Revelation 18, uh, we also see that the focus here is going to be on the merchants of the earth. There's actually three groups involved here. The first are the earth dwellers, the nations involving the people. The second group are the political leaders, the government leaders under the nomenclature of the kings of the earth. And the third group are the merchants of the earth. And these are the three groups that are involved and the three groups that (coughs) bear the brunt of the judgment in Revelation chapter 18. We have to be careful when we read the text not to put on our contemporary uh, spectacles that are colored by uh, modern anti-capitalist, anti-money socialism, but recognize that the Bible sees that there's nothing evil in money or profit, but it is that money is used for the wrong ends. At the end of First um, Timothy, Paul doesn't say that it is money that is the root of all evil. That's how it's commonly misquoted. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. It is greed. It is materialism lust. It is putting an emphasis on things and the things that money can buy as our source of happiness and value and meaning in life so that we become a... a just characterized by uh, constantly trying to gain acquisitions for their own sake, seeking to find meaning and value on that basis alone. So that's what is seen here in this chapter is a condemnation of a material philosophy that sees value in accumulating tremendous amounts of possessions for their own sake. Now, there's nothing wrong with accumulating tremendous amount of possessions. There's nothing wrong with getting $5 million, $10 million, $50 million bonuses as long as you are working for those things, and that's what some organization or corporation has contracted for. 
And for somebody else to come along and make a judgment that that's wrong, it's not any of their business. If you go to work for a corporation and they're going to hire you for what may seem to other people to be just a ridiculous amount of money that nothing can be worth that, that's their business. If if it fails, they should fail because they have made an unwise or a foolish decision. But it's not for the government or anybody else to come in and start dictating uh, dictating salaries. Once you let the government come in and say it's wrong to pay somebody a $50 million bonus, what's to keep the government from saying it's wrong to pay somebody a $5 million bonus or a $1 million bonus or a five? What gives the government the right to dictate what is a reasonable amount of return on one's work? Nothing. That is not the responsibility of government. It is a responsibility of the individual corporation or the, or the individual. What is wrong is when people are accumulating, uh, money and material things to satisfy and to spend on their own pleasure. I know of one man, I don't want to mention his name, but I, in fact, I probably know two or three men who fit this category. They have been very blessed by God in the publication. Uh, business and they have written Christian books and they, that, that have become very popular and have had you know in excess of 30 or 40 million copies printed and they have made uh, well uh, <clears throat> far exceeding 50, 60, 70 million dollars. But in both of these cases, I know that the men have given enormous amounts of the money that they have made to. Uh, Christian organizations and to endow uh, chairs at universities and to support missionaries, and they don't view the uh, material blessing that God has given them as something that they're grasping onto and something that they hold onto, but is rather a stewardship responsibility that God has given to them, and they utilize that wealth uh, in ways to promote uh, evangelism and to promote the local church and to promote uh, ministries, and that is how we should view the blessings that God gives us as a result of our own labor, whether it's uh, great or whether it's small. And so, the condemnation here is that within the uh, secular humanistic world view, that money and material things are to be uh, utilized and consumed totally for the benefit of the individual. And it becomes, as Paul says in Colossians 3, greed is idolatry because human beings begin to look to money and the things that money can buy as the source of what only God can provide. And so then money becomes worshipped. As Jesus said, we can't serve both God and mammon. One has to be the priority. So the distinction between these two chapters is that chapter 17 deals with the thought system, the religious philosophical framework of the uh, cosmic system that dominates Babylon. And on the other hand, it's dealing with the lifestyle and the thoughts of the people in terms of looking to money and material possessions as that which supplies a real meaning and happiness in life. Another difference between the two chapters is that by the end of chapter 17, the uh, those in the kingdom of the beast are uh, glad to see the woman destroyed. 
And there is, because they see the helplessness and the uselessness of the religious philosophy that indeed becomes a a source of bondage. Whereas in chapter 18, uh, the kings, the, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over the destruction of Babylon because they lose their livelihood and they lose all that they have placed their their hope in. So there is a difference in the response to the destruction of the two different uh, the two different systems. As we look at the verse, it talks about another angel. So I pointed out earlier that some think that this is Christ because he has great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory. But this is not his own glory, but this is the same idea that you have in the Old Testament when Moses would go into the tent of meeting with God, and then when he would come out, his face still radiated the glory of God. And would people would see that, and so he had to wear a veil so that the uh, reflection of God's glory would not uh, would not be a distraction for them. In this particular case, you have a, remember, after the uh, third and fourth seals, you have darkness. The earth, the, the sun is darkened, and the moon doesn't give forth its light. And so it is a darkened cosmos. So as this angel comes from the throne of God, it is still an angel of light, and its essential um, makeup is uh, a creature, I believe, of light and is reflecting the glory of God, and so this is illuminating a darkened universe. Uh, This angel has great authority because he comes from God. The authority is not in himself. It is in his the one who sends him on the mission. And he cries out an announcement in verse 2 saying, Babylon the great is fallen, and it has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now, the language here, speaking about demons and spirits and the unclean, suggests to me that Babylon is either, the the word prison indicates they're there not of their own volition, but we can imprison ourselves by virtue of of our own decisions. And so it could be that Babylon is the center, uh, the great city of the Antichrist kingdom also becomes a domain for, for demons. And I believe that as we have studied before, that just as uh, God sends forth holy angels to announce the gospel in chapter 14 and they are visible and can be heard, that I think that there is a, uh, that demons are also visible after Satan and the fallen angels are ejected from heaven, which we studied in Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 12 when the dragon and his angels are cast out of heaven by Michael in the midpoint of the tribulation. I believe that their activity intensifies on the earth and it seems from language like this and other places that they become visible, much as the angels and demons were visible in the period before the flood. Now, that doesn't mean that they can uh, cohabit. Uh, that was ended at the time of the flood, but it does mean that they're visible, and this is why you see this intersection of both uh, of God's judgment on both the demons and the uh, and fallen humanity, the earth dwellers, at the end of the tribulation, he is bringing to a conclusion his judgment upon 
evil. When we look at the verbiage that's here, Babylon the Great is fallen, uh, this is reminiscent of the language that is used in the Old Testament, these statements that we find from uh, verse 3 and on down through uh, verse 8 are verses that draw <coughs> heavily from Old Testament uh, prophecies. Uh, for example, in Isaiah thirteen nineteen through 22, we read, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This is going to be a place never to be inhabited, verse 20. Nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make sheepfolds. This is pretty strong language that cannot be uh, just pushed aside by simply calling it a hyperbole or figure of speech for judgment, which some will try to do. Verse 21 states that wild beasts of the desert will lie there, their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be uh, prolonged. And so these statements related to the uh, just the, the desolation is very similar to that that's mentioned in uh, verse 2 and following in chapter 18. Other passages such as Isaiah 34:14, that the wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, the wild goats and the night creatures will rest there. Isaiah 47, uh, 7 to 9 also talks about the uh, desolation uh, that will come there on Babylon, as well as Jeremiah 50, verse 39, and other passages in Jeremiah 50 and 51. And so all of these passages indicate this tremendous judgment that takes place on Babylon, not a, uh, not a Babylon that is uh, just sort of a code word for Rome, but the literal resurrection of Babylon in its historic site on the Euphrates, on the Euphrates River, uh, the phrase "Babylon the Great is fallen" has fallen. Also, echoes st- statements in other places in Revelation 14:8, as we had the overview of this final judgment cycle in Revelation. There is a, another angel says, "Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city." This is an announcement of what is certainly about to take place. Isaiah 21:9, we also have the phrase, "Babylon is fallen, is fallen." And in Jeremiah 51:8, the statement that Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. So in these verses, there's a connection between Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment during the tribulation uh, period. And that brings us back to this question that has continuously gets raised by people, and is this a Babylon of the, uh, the, the same literal location, literal historical Babylon that uh, somehow is resurrected and rebuilt, or is this a used as sort of a code word, for some other great city or just code word for the spirit of the Antichrist uh, empire. And I taught on this as we went through Revelation, I mean, went through Isaiah 13 and 14 and uh, Jeremiah 50 and 51 uh, a few weeks ago. And after that, 
Um, someone in the congregation came up to me and uh, pointed out the comments that are made on Isaiah chapter 13 in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And so I thought this would be a good time to just make some co- observations about using uh, commentaries and other types of material. Uh, I'm glad when people do that and when they come up and ask questions because it shows you're studying and you're thinking and you're, you're not just sitting there letting whatever I say just go in through one ear and out the other. But you will often find that, that when I teach on something, you may read something and somebody uh, says something different, and that will, that will happen. I'm aware of a lot more of those kinds of things than some people have given me credit for. Uh, over the years, I've been doing this for, I've been out of seminary for 30 years now, and that's right, I'm still at it that much, almost 30 years now. But I've been involved in reading and studying uh, a lot of these issues for at least 36 or 37 years and trying to put all these kinds of things together. And there's, I'm not saying, I'm not omniscient, I'm not claiming that, but in the course of doing master's, a lot of people have funny ideas about seminary. They think you go to seminary sort of like a, an intensive Sunday school class. And uh, I don't know how it is in other schools, but I know at Dallas, if you were writing a a quality paper, then one of the criteria would be that you demonstrated through your footnotes and through your bibliography that you had read a good bit of of, of material. Uh, less would be expected of a master's level student than a doctoral level student, but when you get into the doctoral level work and you're writing uh, any kind of research papers, which you'd have to write. And when you finish your master's degree, usually you have to write a minimum 40 to 50 page master's thesis. When you get into PhD work, each semester in each course, you would have to write a, a minimum 40 to 50 page paper. So you were taught to research and how to think through issues and, and to look at all of the opposing views. Sometimes people would ask me, say, well, you know, you guys at Dallas, you all just hold the same thing. You're just expected to, to read the same thing and, and spout the party line. And that's just far from being, from being true. There was a lot of disagreement, discussion back and forth on different issues among the faculty as well as among the students within a, within the framework of the uh, doctrinal statement. But you were expected as a student to read widely in all the positions, liberals, Pentecostals, Methodists, um, you know, my favorite courses were courses like Systems of Theology, where you had to uh, read and become very knowledgeable of all the different theological systems uh, that were out there. And so you learn to, that's how you develop critical thinking skills. And it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to work through things because, and you need to be widely read, you need to know a lot of things about books you read. You need to be able to read a book and understand who the author is. You need to read about the author. Where did they go to school? What were the influences on, upon them uh, that you can find out from, from reading some biography about them or at least a little bit about the book? Uh, you can learn a lot about and, and just pre-guess a lot of positions about a writer just by virtue of some of the things that are said about his book. Somebody today emailed me about a new collection of books coming out on Lagos, a prepub offer on books on the history of Israel. And there were three books on the history of, of Israel, and the highest praise was given by the uh, Catholic Biblical Quarterly. 
And most of the names of the scholars that wrote reviews or made some comment were from uh, European schools that hadn't seen anybody who had a quasi-conservative view of the Scripture in probably 150 years. And so that didn't fill my soul with a lot of uh, confidence that this would be a positive treatment on the history of Israel. And so you you know wh- what what these schools are and where these people come from and all those kinds of things, and that helps you to to evaluate uh, and, and gives you at least a little bit of an idea of where somebody's coming from. You Also, whenever you read a book, you should read the preface first. That's where the author is going to tell you why he's writing the book and what he's trying to say in the book. And then the next thing you should do is, and after you get an idea of what he's going to say, look at the table of contents, and you go through and you read uh, the chapter headings because that's going to give you an idea of how he's going to develop his thinking and how he's going to develop his argument. And then you read his conclusion. So you know where he's headed. And after you've read his introduction, so he tells you where he's going, what he's trying to prove, and after you've read his conclusion, you look at the table of contents, you have an idea of where he's going, then you can start getting into the into the meat of the book. And it's always important, and I try to tell the pastors this, that just because you have an electronic version of a of a book or you have a, a, a Greek lexicon or a systematic theology and somebody says this is what X means, doesn't make it so. If he's worth his salt, and most of them are, they're going to give you reasons why they think it means this, and then you have to go in and evaluate those those reasons and, and check the data. And then um, what you should do is you should find out who is who's written the best material in opposition to this view. And then you go and you read that material. So you're not just listening to one person present their view, but you understand the other views that are out there, and that way you can evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of of various arguments and various positions. And it takes a, a, you know, that it's not something that you just produce and develop overnight. And uh, you have to, so you have to read some things with some some knowledge. Now, one thing I run across uh, with people is when they they look at the Bible knowledge commentary. Some of you may not know what that is, but in the early 80s, Dallas Theological Seminary produced a tremendous commentary set, two volumes, one on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament, called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And each book of the Bible is covered, and they did a great job. They've got good maps in there, and they've got great charts. And as a, up to that time, most single-volume or two-volume commentaries that you would buy pretty much weren't worth a lot because whenever you came to a difficult passage, uh, the the commentator would just ignore whatever the difficulties were and just go right past it. And, you know, what does this mean? When you go there and you look, and they act like it's not even in the verse. Uh, so that's always discouraging. But what the uh, Bible knowledge commentary would do is that it, these writers the, the, were all seminary professors, and I knew most of them. I had most of these guys for for classes when I went through Dallas Seminary, and was and I'm you know was good friends with many of them. Uh, two or three of them also were classmates of mine as as uh, I went through the master's uh, master's program. And so you you kind of know, or I do, because I know these men, what their strengths and weaknesses are and what their proclivities are, and that always helps a little bit. But the even though it says John Walvert and Roy Zook on the front, they're the editors. They didn't write everything in there. 
Uh, each book is written by somebody uh, somebody different. And there are a few people in there whose views and ideas on certain things I, I really don't have a whole lot of respect for because of things I know about them and uh, know about their theological system and their theological views. And one of these is a guy that, that wrote the commentary on Isaiah. And I just want to see, show you a little bit about what he says related to uh, Babylon in Isaiah 13 uh, as he discusses this. This just goes to giving you a little uh, insight into critical thinking skills. In talking about uh, 13.6 to 13, he says, The day of the Lord here refers to the time of the Lord's judgment on the wicked world and or deliverance of his people. In Isaiah's day, that judgment was coming because of the tremendous political turmoil of the next several decades that would culminate with the fall of Babylon to the Assyrians in 689. Well, the problem with that view is that if you're going to see this as a historic fulfillment that occurred when the Assyrians destroyed Babylon then you've got to really treat the text somewhat lightly in the way all the judgment descriptions are given in the rest of the, ch- of the chapter, which is what he does. He basically bails on the whole thing and says, well, these are just hyperbole and figures of speech without approving uh, that. Of course, in a commentary of this nature, you don't always have the time to do all of that, but but he doesn't. He says, and I, um, he goes on to say, that political turmoil was similar to the judgment which will come on the whole world just before God establishes his millennial kingdom on the earth. So what he is saying is that the judgment that God was going to bring on Babylon in 689 is, is a historic reality, but it, it's only similar to the end time uh, judgment that God brings at the end of the tribulation. Whereas I would say that the day of the Lord terminology almost exclusively refers to what exactly will happen at the end of the tribulation. And these other judgments that happened historically are simply shadows or types of what will happen uh, in the future. He goes on to say this judgment from the Almighty would cause people to be in extreme distress, in pain like women's labor pains. And he lists various passages where those are used. Well, in Isaiah 28, um, um, excuse me, Isaiah 13, 8 here, as well as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and, and in uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus compares the, the uh, pain that occurs, the, the tribulation suffering that occurs in that l- first part of Daniel's 70th week to labor pains. You know something's going to happen, something's going to be given birth to, and the labor pains are simply the misery that the woman goes through before she gives birth. And so the birthing of something is the birthing of the kingdom that is coming, but first there has to be, that ha- there has to be judgment. But what he is doing here is he is applying this to various, always historical situations. And then if you look down about halfway down, the sentence starts right after 12 to 13. He says, the statements in 1310 about the heavenly bodies, the stars, the sun, the moon, no longer functioning, may, notice may, always watch for these words, may, and then figuratively, um, Describe the total turnaround of the political structure of the Near East. Okay, well, my question is, where in the Bible 
Do we have an example of this terminology being used to refer to political uh, political kingdoms being overturned? Not once. See, that's one of the things you're taught that he didn't learn in a THM program, is if you're going to make a claim, you have to be able to give references to show that, yes, this figure of speech is used in these other places to communicate exactly what I'm saying here. So what he does is that's what they all mean. In other words, in order to get his conclusion, he has to say all the passages, and if you look at Joel 2, and we have, you look at Matthew 24, and you look at, at uh, the darkening of the sun and the darkening of the moon on the sixth seal judgment in Revelation 6, and the darkening of the sun, the darkening of the moon at different stages in the uh, trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments, he has to make, he, none of that can be literal. It has to all be figurative of some sort of political turmoil. And he's just violating the whole principle of literal interpretation. Even uh, And he makes all of this figurative. In other words, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the, star, the literal stars aren't going to be dark, the literal sun's not going to be dark, the literal moon's not going to be dark. All of this is just a figure of speech for political turmoil. And basically what that kind of methodology does is it just eviscerates literal, uh, I mean, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. It, 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 because, And this is what has happened in the last... 30 years, is that hermeneutics has come along and destroyed what what the doctrine of inerrancy gave us. Inerrancy says that what God revealed to us is exactly, literally, every word is infallible and is without error. But it, it's what you make of it. It's what it means. It's how you interpret it. So you can talk to somebody and say, oh, yes, yes, I believe that that the that Genesis one is literally true, but it doesn't really mean literal twenty four hour days. It doesn't mean a literal seven day work week. We have to interpret it uh, according to they. They really didn't write it that way, and so they can, on the one hand, say that they believe the Bible is inerrant, but on the other hand, they just totally destroy it by this type of hermeneutic that they have. The individual that wrote uh, the commentary on Isaiah was the academic dean. He was a classmate of mine. He was the academic dean during much of the 80s, and he was individually responsible for uh, not giving tenure to people like Dr. Wayne House, who was a traditional dispensationalist, and giving tenure and hiring men who became the architects of progressive uh, progressive dispensationalism and the eventual, what I would say, the eventual decline of Dallas Seminary. He ended up being uh, let go for personal reasons by the end of the 80s. But, um, you know, it was already in the way he's handling Isaiah here, you can see that what he admitted to later, he was already doubting dispensationalism and a literal interpretation uh, of these particular texts. So that's not easy information for most people to get, but you have to be careful uh, how they uh, handle these things. So he goes on to say, again, all this is similar to the final judgment. He's already made a conclusion that, Isaiah 13 isn't talking about the final judgment. It's talking about something historical. But if it were talking about something historical, then those statements about uh, it wouldn't be inhabited again, only the ostriches and the owls would, would dwell there, no, no Arabian would set his tent there, 
Uh, he can't interpret any of that literally. He has to make all of that just a figure of speech for saying uh, things are going to be pretty nasty for a while, but, uh, but he allows for the rebuilding of Babylon under the, uh, under the Chaldeans. So uh, <clears throat> always, you always have to take whether I'm saying it or whether you're reading it in, in a trusted publication, you always have to keep your 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 mind focused and think about what you're what you're reading because everybody everybody makes mistakes everybody nobody is perfect nobody no human being is inerrant and there's always uh these kinds of problems that can come along now in the last verse <coughs> verse uh, we'll look at tonight verse 3 we have the explanation of why Babylon is falling. It begins with a Greek word, hadi, which always introduces an explanation and states that the reason Babylon is being condemned and judged and destroyed is because all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, in chapter 17, I believe it's in 17.2, we have the phrase, that the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Here it's uh, the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So that has uh, that element of wrath has been introduced here, and <clears throat> uh, that indicates uh, judgment. Uh, the word wrath and anger, which are also used in the Isaiah 13 passage to describe what's going on that day of the Lord, which is typical of day of the Lord passages that are future-oriented, is a use of wrath and anger terminology to indicate the extent of God's judgment. Uh, they've drunk of the wine that would produce the wrath from her infidelity with God. Uh, the kings of the earth have committed fornication. That really should be better to understand they have been uh, unfaithful with, toward God with her. They have rebelled against God and been uh, unfaithful to God with the, th- the thought system and the economic system of, the, uh, of Babylon, the great city. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the power of her luxury. Now, this is a really interesting passage because I'm sure you can see that if you are inclined towards uh, some sort of uh, liberal leftist type of economic system, socialism or uh, Marxism, that this is a passage that could be taken out of context and someone would try to use this to show that, see, God condemns uh, capitalism. God condemns those who are rich. God condemns those who have luxury. Uh, God condemns those who have power. Uh, it's mistranslated, I believe, in the, uh, in the New King James. It's the abundance of her luxury. Actually, the word there is from uh, dunamaos in the Greek, which is the word for power. It's just related to the word uh, uh, dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. Every now and then you'll hear people talk about... Uh, uh, who have a little Greek, enough to make them dangerous. They'll talk about the dunamis of the Holy Spirit, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit. That's just a wrong way to use Greek. It has to do with power. And so it's a power of her luxury. But the condemnation here isn't on money for money's sake or wealth for wealth's sake. As uh, Paul said to Timothy, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money. It's not possessions. It's not wealth that is being judged here. It's not 
capitalism in the sense of being merchants and buying and selling and making a profit. It is the use of all of this for one's own uh, personal uh, comfort and greed and to build a life, uh, seeking to build a life of, of uh, happiness and meaning without um, without being under God's authority. And that is the thrust of the whole uh, section here is that man, <clears throat> uh, the problem with, with uh, Babylon is that man was seeking to define reality on his own terms. That's been the problem since the, since the fall. When Adam disobeyed God and he said that fruit is good to eat, he was trying to redefine reality and find meaning apart from God. Uh, the original covenant that God made with man, as we've studied in, in uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, was that man was to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and that man was to govern and rule over the planet. But when uh, Adam sinned, Satan became the de facto ruler of the planet, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which calls him the god of this age, and John 12, 31, that calls him the ruler of the world, and Ephesians 2, 1, that calls him the prince and the power of the air. And as a result, the, 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 the earth came under the dominion of Satan, and man in sin sought to define reality on his own terms, sought to run the world on the basis of his own ideas, uh, independently of God, mankind sought to find meaning and happiness and hope apart from God, and the result will lead to the extreme perversion and depravity and greed in its most unbelievable form. Nothing we have seen yet comes close to what is going to be evident in the end-time kingdom of the Antichrist, and all of that is the result of man's independence from God. In fact, Robert Thomas, who's written an excellent commentary on Revelation, says that the city has promoted herself by instilling an unquestioning faith in her supposedly inexhaustible resources, thereby discouraging any sense of a deeper need for God. It is the idolatry of money and material things. And that brings us to the conclusion of the initial statement of condemnation from the, from the first angel. And then next week we'll come back to verse four and look at the extended statement of, of judgment down through verse 20 as God himself will announce the coming judgment of the great city, which is, um, stated in verse 18. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be challenged, to be encouraged uh, by your word, knowing that evil will be judged, that right now we may look around us and think that evil is uh, left uh, unattended to and that you're somehow turning your back to it, but you are allowing evil to come to full fruition, and this will happen in the end times, and at that time it will be judged in a way that uh, will reveal your justice and reveal your righteousness and reveal your integrity and reveal that the creature just can't live independently of the Creator. Father, we pray that as we continue our study, we will uh, recognize that there will come a time when we will all stand before you and give an account for our lives. And as believers, we know that we have a destiny in heaven because of faith in Christ. 
But nevertheless, there will be an evaluation at the Bema seat, and we need to prepare for that by our study and application of your word. We pray that you would continue to strengthen us, that God the Holy Spirit would continue to uh, make these things clear to us, and we would continue to be responsive to your teaching. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.